0: I just got a very wonderful shipment of goodies from the folks at Reese's. And let me tell you something. These people remain the absolute worldwide leaders in bringing together chocolate and peanut butter. Of course, we know the peanut butter cups remain transcendent. But have you tried the Reese's sticks, They're wafers with peanut butter in between each wafer, all coated in chocolate? I mean, the combination of sweet chocolate and salty peanut butter just brings people joy and the folks at Reese's do it better than anyone. So shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you. Found wherever candy is sold. This episode contains a reference to a derogatory slur.
1: A lot of parents will tell their kids not to talk to strangers, right? My parents actually gave us the exact opposite instruction. They said, talk to strangers. And who they were talking about were the people sitting in our dining room. They didn't really know what opportunities existed for us outside those walls of that Chinese restaurant, but they knew that there was this dining room full of people that had experiences, right? And so anytime my dad met somebody that had an interesting job, he'd like call all six of us to run over and like barrage these people with like questions like, well, what do you do for a living? How did you get your job? You know what I mean? How much money do you make? And because of that, you know, I loved meeting people. And so I feel like that is something that I take with me.
0: This is The Spork Full. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. Curtis Chen is a documentary filmmaker whose work focuses on Asian Americans who've left important legacies, but who might not be well known in the broader culture. One of his subjects is Corky Lee, a photographer who chronicled New York's Chinatown for over 50 years. He made another film about Vincent Chin, who was murdered by two white auto workers in Detroit in the 80s, an event that galvanized Asian Americans across the country. Now, Curtis is telling his own story in his new memoir entitled Everything I Learned, I Learned in a Chinese Restaurant. Curtis's family opened this restaurant in Detroit long before he was born. As he grew up, it would be the lens through which he'd see much of the world around him. And in fact, there's a lot we can all learn about America through the story of this restaurant. From the Chinese Exclusion Act to the rise of Detroit as a multicultural industrial city to its decline in the wake of white flight and the crack epidemic. Add to that Curtis's own story of trying to figure out his identity and his sexuality in a tight-knit immigrant family. The first member of Curtis's family to come to the U.S. was Gong Li, who arrived in the late 1800s.
1: My great-great-grandfather came from Canton, China, to
0: Canton, Ohio,
1: before realizing there weren't Chinese people there, and so he moved up to Detroit.
0: Gong Li got a job there at a laundry, and a decade later, he opened a dry goods shop. He wanted to bring other family members to the U.S., but the Chinese Exclusion Act barred nearly all immigration from China. There was an exception, however, for merchants. People from China could come to the U.S. if they opened their own businesses. The thing was they wouldn't be taking jobs from union workers at existing companies this way. So, over time, Gong Li was able to bring more of his family members over to work at the dry goods shop. Then, in 1915, that exception in the law for merchants was expanded to include restaurant owners. This policy change led to an explosion in Chinese restaurants in America. In fact, it's a key reason why today there are more Chinese restaurants in America than McDonald's, Burger King's, KFC's, and Wendy's combined, according to the Chinese American Restaurant Association. In 1940, Gong Li's grandson, who was Curtis's grandfather, opened Chung's Cantonese Cuisine in Detroit's Chinatown.
1: It was your typical chop suey joint. They, you know, focused a lot on like chow mein, chop suey, egg foo young. Um, And, you know, at that time, America was going through a lot of changes, right? Women were entering the workforce. People were looking for cheaper options to eat. And Chinese restaurants suddenly became this really popular thing because you could go out for a cheap meal um, and think that you're in someplace completely different.
0: When Chung's first opened, just describe the neighborhood a little bit more, describe the clientele. The old
1: Chinatown was uh, located next to Corktown, the Irish part of Detroit. And so, you know, there were a lot of Irish customers. There were a lot of Jewish customers, particularly because there were so few Asians
0: in Detroit. My family knew that they had to appeal to other people. But in the 1960s, the city of Detroit built a four-lane highway through that part of town, forcing many communities to relocate. The, 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 the highway that they built that destroyed those neighborhoods, that was sort of uh, a result of white flight. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They basically wanted to make it easier for white people who had moved to the suburbs to get between their homes and their offices without having to <laughs> drive on any local roads. Yeah, without having to, have to actually see people who lived
1: in Detroit nice. yeah, or, or interact with them. yeah.
0: Curtis's grandparents were living above the restaurant during this time. When they were forced to move, they tried to buy a house in a better neighborhood but a white developer refused to sell it to them. So one of their Jewish customers helped them out. He bought the house and sold it back to Curtis's family. Curtis says he was repaid with free egg rolls for years. Meanwhile, the restaurant moved to another part of town, known as Cass Corridor. This was becoming home to the city's new Chinatown, as well as Detroit's bohemian and art scene. The new restaurant was now double the size of the old one. Curtis's grandmother convinced her son, Alan, Curtis's father, to drop out of community college and join the family business. She also arranged for him to find a bride in Hong Kong. He went there to meet her, only to find out she had a secret boyfriend. With help from a matchmaker, he met someone else, Shui Kun. They got married, she moved to Detroit with him, and they both began working in the restaurant.
1: We had all this really beautiful, gorgeous artwork that my dad had brought over from Hong Kong when he went back to Hong Kong to uh, meet my mom. And so we had these really, really gorgeous uh, teakwood,
0: you know, paintings, uh, you know, a lot of Chinese mythology. It was very comforting, very warm colors. While most of Curtis's family took pride in the restaurant, his dad, who was known as Big Al, made the place a big part of his identity. Oh, he loved being there. I mean, he would spend
1: countless hours there. Like, even when we'd closed up, he'd always find some excuse, some little thing to do. It's like, oh... You know, just another 10 minutes, just another 20 minutes. I just got to do this one thing. Because I think part is because the customers loved him, right? And um, it really was like that show Cheers where everybody knew your name. People would come in. They'd be like, hey, Al, big Al, how are you doing? You know, and they'd sit down. And a lot of times, you know, my dad would disappear for like 15, 20 minutes. and like, where is he? And we'd find him sitting in the booth just, you know, talking with, you know, the customers. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, my dad was incredible in that sense is that I think about it because he is a person that, you know, really— grew up in Chinatown, but yet he could have these conversations with anybody, you know, that was different from them um, and always find a way to connect with people. And, you know, I feel like that's something I've tried to take with me um, as I've grown up is always trying to meet people where they're at, trying to hear their stories, um, trying to connect, I think. I I think I'm essentially a Chinese waiter my whole life. That's basically what I'm doing. You know, are you happy? Do you have enough tea? That's kind of how I've lived my life, (laughs) you know.
0: Curtis was the third of six children, and he was basically raised in the restaurant. When he was entering fifth grade, his family moved out to the suburbs, which meant transitioning to a very white school in a very white neighborhood. But after school, he went back into Detroit to help out at the restaurant, so he had to do a lot of code switching. On top of that, Curtis says he spent his preteen years trying to understand a feeling that he had when he was around certain other boys. He struggled to figure out what it might mean for him and the people around him. One day, he was opening the restaurant, and the radio was playing Diana Ross's hit song, I'm Coming Out. And then I, I blast the radio,
1: because I can do that, because nobody's in there. And then, you know, one of our waiters came in and caught me singing and dancing um, with it, you know, to the song. And he comes in, and he does the universal hand, you know, wrist thing for FAG, which is like the limp wrist thing, you know. And, and I knew what that was, because kids were doing it at school. And how did that feel? Well, I didn't understand the feeling. I didn't know what the implications were about that. So I was more confused And until, okay, well, I better hide this, right? So I immediately straightened up, immediately, you know, turned down the radio and just, you know, tried to act normal. Um, thankfully, Derek never saw me doing again. And thankfully, he had the memory of a goldfish because he never brought <laughs> it up again. You know what I mean? Um, so it seemed like maybe that was just an anomaly. And he was just flippantly being, um, you know, homophobic and not necessarily, you know, knowing my secret, right? I, I think that's the way I reinterpret it now as an adult. It's like, oh, he was just saying, oh, you know, you're acting so silly. You're acting whatever, right? You know, not saying, ha ha. I know your secret.
0: But but at that age, you you thought maybe that is what he was saying.
1: Yeah, or he he knew something about me that that um which made me vulnerable to being teased, to being picked on, to being um, treated as that outsider, right? I immediately quote unquote straightened up. I tried to like carry myself a different way. Like I tried to you know, talk in a deeper voice. At some point, I switched my name from Curtis to Kurt because I thought that was more manly. You know, there are all these little things that you try to do to just sort of,
0: um, you know, make you less vulnerable to being picked on. Still, as a middle schooler, Curtis continued to have these feelings. At one point, the restaurant hired a new cook, Mr. Ma. Looking back, Curtis says he had a major crush on Mr. Ma. Yeah,
1: he was our fry cook, so he actually was really quite busy because you know, a lot of the fried dishes that we had were very, very popular. Um, you know, including egg foo young, fried shrimp, things like that. But the most popular was almond boneless chicken, which um, at the time I just thought this was a staple of every Chinese restaurant because certainly in Detroit every restaurant had it. But I didn't know that um, you know restaurants on the coast and other places didn't necessarily have this dish. Then what was almond boneless chicken? So almond boneless chicken um, is a very simple dish to make. It's just breaded white meat chicken uh, battered and fried. And then it'd be like a brown gravy on it and served with a side of white rice. Where the almond comes in is really just a crushed garnish along with some slivers of uh, peapod and uh, water chestnut. So a very, very simple dish to make, very quick to make, but very, very popular.
0: And that was one of the dishes that he made. And you were sort of secretly hoping to convince him to teach you how to make it.
1: I was just looking for any excuse to be around him. I mean, even thinking about him now, like... These many decades later, I still get the little, you know, excitement like, oh, God, that guy was so cute. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, I, and again, at that age, I'm not really sure what my sexuality is. I just knew I wanted to be around him because he made me laugh. You know what I mean? And he made me feel good. And because I grew up in a big family, like with six kids, and um, I don't, I never felt like I was really noticed a lot, but he always seemed to notice little things about me, you know, and that made me feel good. At the same time, I was also trying to figure out how to be a better cook because I was disastrous. And my dad had already been trying to teach me and I'd been failing miserably. And I thought like, hey, I'm going to kill two birds with one stone. And so I approached Mr. Ma uh, for
0: private lessons. Curtis asked Mr. Ma to teach him how to make almond boneless chicken. Here's Curtis reading from his book, telling the story of what happened next. Mr. Ma stared straight
1: at me. His eyes were the color of Kona coffee with a blend of milky cream. I could tell from his indifference that Mr. Ma wasn't keen to play Julia Child, but I didn't care. I was going to make it happen, even if I had to get on my knees and beg. To my relief, it didn't come to that. The door to the dining room swung open. It was Alfred, one of our surly waiters. He shouted, Two ABCs! Which was often short for American-born Chinese, but in this case meant almond boneless chicken. I couldn't believe my luck. I clasped my hands together. Please. Mr. Ma grabbed four pieces of filet, all lightly breaded. Jing which means watch me. Yes, that was my green light, and I was going. I stepped in closer. My eyes stayed glued to his sinewy forearms as he slipped the meat into the hot oil. The sizzling pops and the Vesuvian heat raised my temperature. A thin layer of sweat glistened on Mr. Ma's skin. I could practically taste that chicken. A minute later, he scooped out the pieces and dropped them onto the wooden chopping board, which he kept immaculately clean. The anticipation built as the warm, familiar smell wafted into the air. He slid the pieces onto the bed of finely shredded lettuce on the first tray. The arrangement looked perfect, full, and fetching. The first bite was always with the eyes. He held out his knife. Thoughts of my past kitchen disasters flashed through my head. What if I messed up like I had with my dad? Would Mr. Ma ever speak to me again? I gave him my best puppy dog face. Me? Mr. Ma nodded and again offered me the knife, hilt first. We traded places. He wasn't much taller than me, so our bodies were evenly matched. Feeling confident, I lifted the knife above my head. Suddenly, a hand cradled mine. It was small and rough. I froze. Outside of wrestling in gym class with a sweet, dimpled boy named Steve Kramer, this was my first not-so-innocent physical contact— but this time, there were no giggling classmates making innuendos about me being gay that I had to pretend not to hear. As my body stayed frozen, my eyes spotted a scar on his wrist. I recognized it as the result of splashing oil. I knew because I had one like that too, from when I threw a half-eaten Snickers into the deep fryer. I wanted to tell him about our connection, but I was too smitten to speak. Mr. Mott tightened his grip. His voice tickled my neck. Go! I closed my eyes and brought the knife down. I waited for the clash of elements, metal on wood, but the sound never came. My blow was too soft, too weak. Mr. Mogg released his grip, but I didn't want him to let go. I wanted him to hold me, to stay exactly where he was, to never move. I considered screwing up so he could swoop in to rescue me, but I chose to show him that I was strong and mature, that I could handle myself. I brought the knife down again, this time with purpose. The fowl split perfectly. Several more chops and the meat was quartered, I felt manly, on the verge of adulthood. My persistence had paid off. All it took was a bit more confidence and clarity. After I ladled on the gravy and sprinkled on the slivers of snow peas, water chestnuts, and the eponymous crushed almonds, I showed my masterpiece to Mr. Ma. He gave the dish a once-over before winking his approval. I was desperate for a kiss on the lips, or at least a pat on the back, but all I got was a nod of his head.
0: How does it feel reading that Reliving that moment today. Oh, I could still see and smell him. <laughs> you know?
1: Yeah, he was really cute. He really, really was cute. Very, very cute. So that's all I can say.
0: <laughs> Coming up, Curtis begins opening up to others about his sexuality. And as crime in Detroit gets worse, Curtis's parents have to decide whether to keep the restaurant or close it. Stick around. Sauté, you stay, because it's time for some ads. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, a business tripper, or a long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. They've got over 7,000 locations in 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels, and you will get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. I especially love those Cambria Hotels. They have locally inspired hotel bars with all kinds of specialty cocktails, downtown locations right in the center of all the action. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces. That way, if you're a business traveler, you'll be able to get all your work done. On-site restaurants, fantastic. And then at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles and great pools for the whole family and spacious rooms. I mean, if you have kids, you understand the importance of the pool. If you stay at a hotel with a pool... Almost nothing else matters. Fortunately, all the Choice Hotels take care of all the other stuff, too. But, I mean, a pool is a great start. Whatever kind of vacation you're going on, whatever kind of travel you're doing, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. This episode is brought to you by Merrick Pet Care. We have a dog. Her name is Sasha. She's almost four. She's a standard poodle. She's black and fluffy and soft and very adorable. And when we first got her, we took her to, like, this puppy kindergarten training class. The whole family went. And, you know, they're teaching you how to use the treats and all this. The trainer watched Sasha for a bit and said, hmm, she's very food motivated. And my daughter Emily turned to me and said, she's a Pashman. <laughs> and so she is food motivated, and that's why we make a point of feeding Sasha high-quality pet food. Founded in Hereford, Texas, Merrick has been crafting high-quality dog food for over 30 years. Real is Merrick's recipe, so they always use deboned meat, fish, or poultry as the number one ingredient. And let me tell you something, when it's dinner time, Sasha is motivated. Okay. She is highly motivated to come in from patrolling the backyard at dinner to get up off the couch, whatever she's doing, she will drop it and come running. Check out Merrick online or in your local pet store and look for their new packaging with real ingredients shown on the bag and inside it. I enjoy a nice glass of wine, but I don't pretend to be an expert in wine. I usually just want a wine that's high quality, delicious, and not too expensive. And to me, that's Bogle Family Vineyards. And here's the thing about Bogle. This is a third-generation family-owned winery from California that makes exceptional wines for about 10 bucks a bottle. Bogle wines consistently earn best buy designations and high ratings from wine enthusiasts. And let me tell you something. The folks at Wine Enthusiast, they drink a lot of wine. They drink a lot of fancy, expensive wine. And yet they still keep giving great ratings to Bogle. And Bogle Vineyard has so many different kinds of wine. Whatever your mood, whatever you're eating, there's a wine for you. They got this great Pinot Grigio that's crisp and fruity, goes well with spicy foods, with fish. They have a classic Chardonnay that's balanced, amazing, with a pork tenderloin or butter chicken. I like to take that Chardonnay and do what Jacques Pepin taught me, a couple of ice cubes in your glass of Bogle. If Jacques Pepin says it's okay, then it's okay. And there's the Bogle Pinot Noir, refined and elegant with bright fruit and about as food-friendly as a red wine can be. You're not going to believe it's only $10. Neither will your friends if you tell them. So pick up a few bottles of Bogle wherever you buy your favorite wines. Please drink responsibly. Are you ready for warmer weather? I know I am. But is your wardrobe ready? I just stocked up on spring and summer clothing at Quince. And let me tell you something. I'm feeling great about everything I got. I got a couple of short sleeve button-down shirts, polo shirt, some shorts. Everything feels great. It's super high quality. And I can't believe how much stuff I got at a reasonable price. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Whatever you need for the spring and summer, quince has your back upgrade your wardrobe go to quince.com slash sporkful for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns that's q-u-i-n-c-e.com slash sporkful to get free shipping and 365 day returns quince.com slash sporkful welcome back to the sporkful i'm dan pashman School is back in session, so in last week's show, we heard stories about the triumph and tragedy of school lunch. The lunch period it's about more than just food. It's the one part of the day where kids have a little less supervision, where you can be yourself. So I've often been curious about what my daughters talk about during lunch. But of course, if I showed up at their cafeteria, I don't think it would go over well. So I did the next best thing. I went to PS 216 in Brooklyn and talked to some fifth graders there. What do you guys talk about at lunch? We usually play this game called Minecraft. I hear some of the girls at their lunch table, they talk about the future and what they're going to do with their lives. Do you guys ever talk about that? Nope.
1: (laughs) Because none of us know what we're going to do.
0: So here at school, lunch is also a big deal for parents. I talk with my old friend Kenji Lopez-Alt, who shares his secrets to packing lunch for his kids. It involves a device with a long history that lately has gotten a lot of attention and a little pushback. The bento box. That episode's up now. Check it out. Okay, back to my conversation with Curtis Chin, whose new memoir is entitled, Everything I Learned, I Learned in a Chinese Restaurant. In the mid-80s, as Curtis went through high school, he became more of a manager at Chung's Cantonese. Meanwhile, the neighborhood, Cass Corridor, continued to change.
1: It was the red light district, and so a lot of times people would come down to explore, you know, their adult pleasures and things like that. And so... I had I had this joke. It's like, you know, um, growing up as a kid, it's like, you know, the only bookstores in our area were like adult bookstores. You know, it's like, hey, we're kids. We like to read too. So it's like there were so many sex industry things like the bars, the prostitutes. Three doors down from our, our, our restaurant was a bar that was uh, labeled female impersonators. I guess you would call it a drag bar. Um, and so that's the type of neighborhood it was. So I you know, because our customers were uh, the local citizens, we did have prostitutes and pimps and drug dealers coming in after hours, like around after six, after the um, white-collar workers oftentimes left the city. Uh, in
0: the evening, it would become the people that lived around that area. Curtis's dad worked hard to maintain Chung's welcoming environment. But that was hard because Detroit was also in the middle of the crack epidemic. Sometimes Curtis would go into the restaurant bathroom to clean it and find someone passed out in there.
1: Yeah, we'd have to call the ambulance and stuff like that. So as much as my parents tried to keep us safe in in those four walls, they couldn't always be successful. I mean, we tried different things. We'd hired a security guard. We installed a buzzer system. But you just never know sometimes, right? Like, people get through. Um, Oftentimes those elements
0: of that inner city oftentimes came into our, our front door. Over time, despite the difficulties, Chung's became an area institution thanks to its late hours, low prices, and long history in the neighborhood. People also just loved the food. One regular customer was the city's mayor, Coleman Young. His favorite order was Egg Foo Young with lobster. He ordered it so often that they changed the spelling of the dish on the menu to Egg Foo Young, Y-O-U-N-G, which was how Mayor Young's last name was spelled. One day, the mayor was eating there with some associates. Curtis's mother took the opportunity to raise an issue with him.
1: My mom was very good with the customers. She was very pretty, very friendly, but she was also very smart. And so, you know, if there was something she wanted, she wasn't shy about, like, using her charms. The city uh, had removed a lot of the
0: free parking in front of our stop to extend the bus lane. They had replaced the free parking in front of the restaurant with a bus stop so that your customers couldn't park right in front of the restaurant anymore. Yeah, But so, like, what, what issue did that create for the customers? Well, it was a crime
1: issue, right? Because um, in Detroit, a lot of people would break into cars that were parked. And so if you had to park across the street, if you had to park that not directly in front of us, where you could watch your car, like because we had our windows open, right? When they removed all that, that became an alarm because, you know, some of our customers were now getting harassed and and robbed
0: on their way. You know, my mom felt like we can't have this happening. But this kind of illustrates just... Just how dangerous the area around the restaurant could be. I mean, the fact that it made such a difference to be able to park your car right in front of the restaurant versus across the street was the difference between getting mugged on the way in or out of the restaurant or not. Yeah, 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 exactly. That was Detroit in that era. So the mayor comes in and your mom says, we need those parking spaces back. Yeah. And what happens? Well, the
1: the mayor uh, looks over at his, uh, you know, assistants that are sort of sitting at the next table over, and the next morning, voila, uh, the sign was removed and the parking spaces were returned. They were now available uh, to our customers again.
0: So running Chung's in that neighborhood at that time was a constant challenge. There was another facet of the location that further complicated life for Curtis. Detroit's gay neighborhood was right next to Chinatown. And sometimes young gay men would come in to eat at the restaurant after a night out. As a teenager, this always made Curtis uncomfortable. Like their mere presence might somehow give away his secret. But their visits also gave him a little bit of hope. Seeing this
1: world collide, these two parts, which I thought, you know, were always going to be separate, um, it offered a glimpse to me that maybe... um, you know, they wouldn't have to be so de- separate. And maybe also just seeing my parents, because they were very nice to everybody. You know, um, they never showed any homophobia. I mean, they had gay friends. Um, and even when it came to things like sex workers, right? They were so friendly, you know, to these people who worked there. And they understood the difficulties that these people's lives were. They didn't judge them. Yet as kids, we always hold on to that that fear, that, that 1% fear of like
0: maybe you know, Maybe it could go wrong. After high school, Curtis went to college at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. That's when he started coming out to friends and found a supportive queer community. He was going out to gay bars, spending summers in San Francisco. He was finding his way. Meanwhile, his parents were still in Detroit running the restaurant. The summer before his junior year of college, he went back to visit. Someone had,
1: uh, you know, broken these gorgeous windows that we had. We, it was the highlight of our restaurant. So many customers came in because they wanted to sit by the window with these gorgeous lights and stuff like that. And uh, I came one night, and it was the night where I was thinking of possibly coming out to them. And uh, instead, I see cinder blocks. And I enter the restaurant, and it really seemed like a tomb, right? Because all that natural lighting was gone. Cinder blocks uh, completely
0: covering the windows,
1: Like like a wall. Yeah, it's completely dark. It just seemed like a dead space. Um, And it was really depressing and also fearful because, like,
0: who did this? Curtis's mom explained that someone had thrown a rock through the front window. The landlord fixed it, but then it happened again. So the landlord decided to cut his losses and put up a wall of cinder blocks. When my mom told me that this had happened twice
1: in the matter of, like, a couple weeks, I got even more worried. I was like, what if they come back? Right. And I, at that point, I really, um, you know, really uh, tried to get my parents to close up. Um, one of the other lessons my parents always taught me was loyalty. Right. Always stand by, you know, the people, you know, that that are good to you. And, I, you know, I felt that way about our customers in that area. But for the first time, I thought like, well, maybe this is time to abandon Detroit. This is maybe the time to leave. Like we can't, you know, as much as you want to be loyal to Detroit, you don't, you don't want to get killed, right? You don't want to give up your life or something like that.
0: And what did your parents say to that?
1: No. I mean, they, they, that's all they knew. That
0: was their life. And at some point, I just sort of had to accept it. After college, Curtis moved to New York to pursue a career as a writer. I asked him if he ever came out to his parents. Oh, that's in book two. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Save it for the sequel. Yeah, save it for the sequel. His parents continued running the restaurant for over a decade after that cinder block wall went up. Then, in 2000... I remember my dad um, casually mentioning it to me uh, on one of our check-in calls, and he just said, oh, we're closing next week. The restaurant needed major repairs. It couldn't continue operating as it was. The landlord wasn't willing to foot the bill. So Curtis's parents had to close up. And I was shocked, because
1: I'd always grown up thinking that this restaurant would be there forever. I mean, it survived so much, right, and been around for so long, um, But after I accepted the fact that, okay, my dad was not going to change his mind – I said to him, you need to at least delay it a month so that you can announce it and uh, let all your former customers know so they can come back, you know, even if it means coming from afar. Some of them might want to do that, right? Because we always had people coming from Florida or North Carolina or Texas and say, hey, we used to live in Detroit and whenever we come home, we always want to make a stop, right? I just felt like he needed to um, offer that opportunity because the city had given us so much, right to give those people an opportunity to also say thank you or to have a last meal at our restaurant but my dad just didn't want to do that and i think that the way i the only way that i could interpret that is that my dad maybe felt a little shame that the restaurant had closed underneath his watch. Maybe it was just too emotionally hard for him. Maybe he recognized that it would have been too hard to see all these people coming in and saying goodbye, knowing that, you know, these people that he literally grew up with, right, people, families that he'd seen, people giving birth to their kids and then watching their kids go off to college, that he would no longer be able to, to see these people. Was, was
0: part of it also that you wanted that moment for him? Yeah, to celebrate it. I mean, it was a success, and it had its run, you know. Uh, I knew it was
1: up to his decision. I didn't think I would ever be in a position to move back there and like take over because I was living in New York and just starting my own life there. Not just for him, but for our family. It, uh, it's a grieving because it was a big part of our family, right? And it just defined us so much. It really comes to identify who you are. Did you ever tell
0: your dad that you didn't think it was a failure? Are you going to make me cry? Like, (laughs) uh, no,
1: I, I, no, it's weird. No, I never told my dad I was proud of him. I never told him that he did a great job in life. Uh, I actually was really kind of rough on my dad, um, before his passing and he passed away in a car accident. I'm sorry to hear that. You know, so it was sudden and shocking and, uh. You know, yeah, I, I, I could have been nicer to my dad because at that time I was being frustrated with him and some of the decisions that he was making about the business again. So, yeah, no. Um, I don't know if I've ever completely processed that, you know, when someone's taken away like that. But in terms of the business now, sadly, I, I never told him. Um, but I, I think I feel like sometimes I did thank him for giving me a great life because by that time I'd always, I was working in Hollywood. I was a TV writer. You know, having a really good life, um, you know, coming from the inner city of Detroit, getting more than what would have been reasonably expected from most of the other kids that were around there. Um, I, I, I did thank him a couple of times, but I never said I was proud of him. And I think there's a difference, right?
0: I mean, you devoted a lot of yourself to that restaurant, too. I mean, obviously, I, I wasn't there. I don't know your relationship with him. But as a parent, I feel like I think parents know their kids better than sometimes the kids realize Yeah. And um, I suspect he knew that you were proud, even if he didn't say it. I, I hope so. I mean, I think just the fact that I engaged with him
1: you know what I mean? And I know that he was definitely proud of us. I mean, everything that we did, whenever, uh, oh, my God, it was almost embarrassing how much he would brag about his kids to all the customers. It's like his customers knew so many details about us. Like whenever I'd come back for the weekend or whatever, it's like they'd say, like, oh, so how's this going? And I'd be like, what? Because I knew my dad had like, you know, blabbed about, you know, right. what was going on in my life. So, no, he was definitely proud. I knew that. And, you know, I, I think that that
0: made me feel good, right? Because in that sense that he felt like he was success in life, but at the time that his dad decided to close the restaurant, Curtis couldn't persuade him to keep it open, even a little longer.
1: I can only imagine, you know, the, the, the uh, grief and sadness and all these emotions that he must have gone through. And to make that decision that, no, we have to close. Um, because business was still good, right? We still, it was still viable. It just that we didn't have the money to do the um, capital improvements.
0: Right, the repairs.
1: Yeah, because at that time, my parents still had multiple kids in college. Do you know what I mean? I mean, that's where the money was going. Um, so it was, it was really quite sad for me. Um, I never got a chance to go back and have a last meal at Chung's either myself. What would you have ordered? Almond boneless chicken. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was living in New York and I couldn't get in anywhere. I would have almond right. boneless chicken. You would have brought back Mr. Ma to cook it for you? Invite Mr. Ma to come back. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: That's Curtis Chin. His memoir, Everything I Learned, I Learned in a Chinese Restaurant, comes out October 17th. It's available for pre-order now wherever books are sold. And if you want to win a copy of the book, sign up for our newsletter by October 23rd. We'll tell you what everyone on the Sporkful team is eating and reading, and being on that list gets you an entry into every one of our giveaways. So if you're already subscribed, you're already in the running. If not, sign up now at sporkful.com newsletter. Also, Curtis is embarking on a big book tour. He's sitting 40 plus cities and towns across the country, so there's a good chance he can be somewhere near you. For all the info, go to CurtisfromDetroit.com. Next week on the show, the Salad Spinner Returns. This is our food news rapid fire roundtable discussion. We'll be talking about weird food collaborations, why Bass Pro Shops are kind of like supermarkets these days, and also Taylor Swift's concert riders. It's gonna be a lot of fun. Don't miss it. That's next week. While you wait for that one, make sure you check out last week's show where I find out what kids are really talking about during school lunch and Kenji Lopez-Alt shares his tips for packing a bento box. That one's up now. This show is produced by me along with senior producer Emma Morgenstern and producer Andres O'Hara Editing by Nora Ritchie Our engineer is Jared O'Connell And our intern is Julia Russo Music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher Studios. Our executive producers are Colin Anderson and Nora Ritchie. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And
1: I'm Fraser from Toronto, reminding you to eat more, eat better, and eat more better. You don't need a lot of money to do more with it. Join Padma Lakshmi, Viola Davis, and Fidelity's Women Talk Money team during our free Women's History Month series as we get real about ways you can start planning and saving for the future you want so you can feel good about your money every step of the way. Save your seat today at fidelity.com WHM. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE, SIPC.